Hello again, everyone. Do you remember me? <laughs> it's been a while. I got so burned out on work and everything else that once I took a break from this, I lost way more momentum than anticipated. Uh, but here I am again, somewhat refreshed, <laughs> back with episode 10, Double Digits. So this was an excellent conversation with my friend Jean Utsuram, another wonderful researcher from the Philippines. She is a marine biologist and science communicator, including on Twitter with the handle at Jean, the number eight, then R-U-M. I'll include that in the episode details. We first met in 2010 on a survey of Dr. Luella Dolars, for Irrawaddy Dolphins in the Guimaras and Iloilo Straits in the Philippines. But Jane's work ex extends beyond marine mammals into fishes, including sharks and rays. She is currently a consultant for Marine Wildlife Watch of the Philippines and serves as a member of the Philippine Aquatic Red List Committee's subcommittee for cartilaginous fishes and the IUCN Shark Specialist Group. If you have an ear for details and an excellent memory, <laughs> you might recall that she was mentioned by Doc Jome in her episode, episode eight, as being one of the few elasmobranch conservation folks who paid attention and actually cared about information on how a sudden ban on mobula ray fishing uh, affected communities. Our conversation covered a wide range of topics uh, colonial science and decolonization, big international organization privilege compared to what small organizations have to go through to get attention, uh, sentiments and words versus meaningful action, the term sachet economy, and the shaming of marginalized groups who are constrained to what's so-called environmentally less friendly practices, uh, the need for conservation solutions to reflect the reality of the context in which the problems exist instead of just copying and pasting from somewhere else, the importance of dispelling misconceptions about coastal communities among conservationists, and social media. If you're interested in social media advocacy, she has some very wise words of advice. Really, if you use social media at all, I would actually pay attention to what Jean has to say on the topic. I found it really helpful. Um, and throughout these topics, a common thread is, and here's another call back to Doc Jome, um, the need for common sense. Uh, as another one of my regular reminders, I am so pleased that you are following along, whether you're listening or reading or both. It would be fantastic if you could take a little bit of your time and energy to to like, share, review, comment, etc. Um, I really appreciate your engagement in any way, and and hope that this podcast can reach as many people as find it interesting and useful. And with that, I would just like to say thank you so much, Jean. I, I truly enjoyed this conversation with you, and. I am so happy to be able to share ideas from my research family in the Philippines. It's a group that I feel very honored and, and privileged to be included in. 
Here is a snippet of that beautiful song, The Green Touch, from Somo Twin, Ziantet, and Min Min in Myanmar, and then we'll dive in. ยาลาเฮตุกปาจีเยสิงโคดานเวนาสวนเลตุเปียวเนียผิวเส้นโลเลเซลันเนลาปาจีเยกงโกซาวเนตุลาเวwell, thank you so much for making the time to chat with me. Uh, I'm very happy with the representation I'm getting from the Philippines. There's going to be three of you in total for this first season. But yeah, I'd love to talk to you about a lot of different topics, but. Um, this cat is going to get kicked out very soon, I think. Uh, but, you know, you, one of the things I think you're known for, I'm so sorry, I'm going to have to kick him out. He's, he's going to catch me. Kit? I'm sorry, buddy. I'm so sorry. If I go outside. Thank you. <clears throat> okay. So in addition to your research, you're pretty active on social media, on Twitter, and I think it's really fantastic that, you know, you are there, you know, sharing your perspective, and it's a perspective that I think represents what a lot of Filipino researchers feel, what a lot of researchers in the Global South feel and experience. So uh, I am not active on Twitter because it's overwhelming, but I do enjoy seeing what you post when I'm on there. <laughs> Um, so I'd love to hear you talk a bit about parachute science or colonial science. Uh, I know Joam spoke a lot about it, but I'd love to hear a little bit about your own experiences uh, yourself. Yeah, so um, I find it really hard or difficult to discuss um, colonial science or parachute science because I think um, Joam really hit it on the head when she talked about colonial mentality. And I've, I've said this in in the sharks international panel that i joined last year you know it's it's a difficult topic to talk about with people from countries that were historically colonized right mm -hmm. even though um our countries may have gained independence like the colonial mentality is still there and it's it's still very much pervasive in our everyday lives so that when it does happen, like when parachute science happens or colonial science happens, we're not always able to recognize okay. that, that's, that that's happening to us, right? right. Um, like if it happens to me, I might be able to process it because like I'm, I'm just feeling so much frustration or whatever. But if it happens to someone else, it'll take... I'll, I'll probably like hesitate mm -hmm. to call it out because they seem okay with it. So is it really, you know, like it's this weird um, thing to navigate. Um, yeah. and, and so it's, it's very difficult to discuss because 
I think it would really depend on each person's self-awareness mm-hmm. and, you know, um, their own experiences with um, foreign researchers. So, but I think like in my history, um, after college, I like I worked um, in terrestrial conservation for a bit. That was really when I started to first notice these things um, because um, as a college student, I was always kind of taught to aspire to do graduate studies abroad, to work abroad. Like that was always the goal to work abroad, um, you know, be successful abroad. But then I volunteered at a local center and I ended up working at that local center and I started to see so many foreign researchers and conservation workers were coming to the Philippines to do their work here and that kind of made me question why was that you know why were Filipinos going uh, Filipino biologists and scientists in general going abroad while so many foreigners especially white foreigners were coming to the Philippines and um, another thing was why was I learning about Philippine biodiversity from foreigners. Like I wasn't mm-hmm. learning about, um, you know, I wasn't learning about the Poseidon spotted deer from a Filipino or, you know, all these other um, island endemics or Philippine endemic species from Filipinos. I was learning about it from these foreigners who were interested in studying mm-hmm. them and, and making conservation plans for those wildlife. So that was, that was one um, kind of, that was kind of when I started to question it um, and, and started to change, um, you know, my plans really. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I ended up not, not going abroad, right? Like I ended up staying here um, because I felt like I wanted to be one of the next generation of Filipinos because there were, I'm, I'm not saying that I was the first. There, there are actually a lot of Filipino scientists and biologists who chose to stay here um, and work um, tireless, tirelessly and sometimes without the recognition that they deserve. Um, yeah, so it's, it's tricky because were those foreign researchers parachuting? They weren't. Um, they were working with local biologists. They were working with local guides. Mm-hmm. But was it colonial? It was probably colonial because they had that privilege of being able to go back to their country afterwards um, and not have to think about our problems once they submit that trip report or submit that manuscript for publication. Um, you know, like they go on with their lives. Uh, meanwhile, we're stuck here and we have to deal with, we're, we're, we're left to figure out um, how to address environmental issues here with um, the limited funding that we may or may not have access to. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's such an important point. And as someone who's on the other side of that dynamic, it's definitely something that struck me kind of early on. You know, I I had never made any explicit assumptions about the capacity of my local counterparts. Either way, my assumption was that they knew more than me, really. But um, after a little bit of time in the field, I was like, it's really weird that I just went to the other side of the globe to do this and there's people here who are great at doing this and I know I knew why I did that but it was just strange to me that 
there was this kind of unevenness in the space. You know, it was easy for me to go to these countries, do research, and like you said, go home. Not so easy for, not nearly as easy for people from those countries to come to places like America or Australia or Western Europe and do the same and go home. Like there's just so many imbalances there. So um, it's really, yeah. I enjoy hearing your perspective from, from the and, it, and And it's good that you, point that out like um how the access wise like it's a one-way street a lot of times you know like people from the global north or um there it's so easy for them to come here whereas for us it's easy to go, uh it's not that easy to go abroad exactly. <laughs> right yeah. and even just working within the philippines that was you know colonized by um spain and also by by um the U.S. Um, and also occupied by Japan for for a while, and Japan being like a powerhouse country in itself, um, we hold such like high regard for foreigners, and this is again plays into the colonial mentality that John talked about, right? Right. So, um, in my experience, like one of the first um, the full time job that I got after college was with an international nonprofit organization. So, I saw how easy it was for me to um, get people's attention and and be able to get a meeting with um, authorities or, or um, academic um, you know um, personnel just to set up things if I just mentioned you know like introduce myself I'm from so-and-so international mm-hmm. um, it would just immediately get people's attention and, and get them to like open the door for me so much. But um, before that, I had worked part-time for uh, and volunteered at that local center. And, and it would just take forever to like, I would have to follow up communications almost every day or sometimes I would have to spend hours sitting in someone's office waiting for them to read my letter and then decide whether or not they wanted to meet me to discuss you know activities so um even within the philippines like it it's kind of hard because of that colonial mentality that we have mm-hmm. yeah and that's something that i really experienced when i was working in myanmar for a large international organization prior to that i really only partnered with small local groups uh but then when I was working in Myanmar, I was suddenly in the realm of these, these major organizations that were linked to humanitarian groups, to development organizations, to embassies. And it was really, it's kind of similar to conservation conferences in a way that like that are held in really nice, fancy, expensive hotels. And um, it was just this strange universe where like we're purporting to help marginalized people and purporting to work in fields that are scarce in resources and yet there's this kind of prestige or kind of ostentatious assumption that these international organizations of course they're gonna like put on an event at the most expensive hotel in town of course the foreign personnel are going to get their own hotel rooms why would they have them share with local staff you know, so that's definitely something that while I appreciated kind of the the relative luxury of those situations, I was not very comfortable with with what those dynamics revealed. Um, lots of stuff to unpack there. But going back to kind of 
your Twitter activism. You know, you've called out parachute or colonial science on Twitter, and I feel like you've gotten good attention for that. Um, how do you feel about the responses you've gotten from the foreign community, from the community of researchers outside of the Philippines? Um, it's kind of weird. Okay. <laughs> First of all, it was it was really overwhelming um, because I I didn't expect it, especially with the one that I um, the Twitter thread that I made um, towards the end of last year. Mm-hmm. I really didn't expect it to take off. Um, Wow. And and go viral, so to speak. So, so it was I was suddenly um, kind of like the poster child for decolonization in the Philippines, and and it it resonated with a lot of Filipino scientists, and I I it was overwhelming in the sense that I they were sharing their experiences, they were sharing their stories. Some of them um, knew the organizations that I was calling out and they were sending me messages, sharing their stories because these were stories that they never felt they could share openly. Um, And so I suddenly felt this pressure to kind of um, be like an advocate, right? And that wasn't really my intention when I I started the Twitter thread, I was just calling out and something that I saw and observed. Um, And so it was, it was suddenly being put on the spotlight and people were reaching out and giving me these platforms to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And, and so there was this pressure to do that. And then, in, but in general, the response from the international community has been really positive. It's, it's nice and reassuring to get messages of support, um, especially from people who are in positions to change policies um, regarding how research is conducted mm-hmm. um, outside of their home countries, um, you know, whether it's it's people from academia or nonprofit organizations or professional societies. So it's it's really nice. But at the same time, I think um, me having worked in Philippine conservation and being exposed to so many um, foreign researchers and conservation workers over time, I'm just a bit, you know, I'm a bit pragmatic. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, a bit, I'm a bit reserved. I have my reservations about... Um, uh, the sincerity of of the words that that people use, like mm-hmm. um, it just because we don't really know. Like I appreciate their. I'm sure some of them are genuine, and and come from a well-meaning place. But unless I actually see the action, right, <laughs> hard to take it at um at at more than just words, right? Um, so like for instance, one of the things that that got me irked was the response of one of the researchers um, or research organizations that I called out was, was they didn't take accountability for what I called out. Um, and their response was instead to say, oh, that's not, that's not really us. You're confusing us for a different organization. Um, but basically it was the same people. They just renamed themselves after some time. Oh, okay. so, and I was kind of surprised by that because, and, and again, this might have been, this might be more to do with colonial mentality and just how Filipinos generally are like forgiving um, and, and, and like we just like to give chances yeah. to people, I guess. Um, I was kind of surprised by their response because I would have appreciated a more diplomatic response to say like the standard kind of response in those situations from an international 
um, or foreign research group saying something like, oh, we acknowledge this and we're working hard to correct this. Like that would have been more um, palatable, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um, rather than to just kind of say, oh, that's not us. And then one of the other foreign researchers that, um, because it was for, for context, it was a, it was a paper it, to be published. It was a preprint paper mm. um, of a study that was conducted in the Philippines and there were no foreign authors. Uh, there were no Filipino co-authors in that paper, right? So one of the other responses of the, four of, of the authors was to say, oh, we acknowledge the, the support, the invaluable contributions of these Filipinos, but they didn't qualify for co-authorship. And so these are, again, like words, just, just it's hard to read between the lines. Um, so in, in how people are response, re- responding to a situation or an issue. Um, but overall, like I, I like to think that the international community has been really supportive. Um, it's just hard for me to kind of take it um, as more than just words. And I think that's completely fair, Jean, like completely fair. <laughs> I mean, not just in conservation, but like when people are talking about diversity and inclusion efforts, a lot of that is lip service. But when it comes down to like, oh, we're going to have to inconvenience ourselves to change this. Well, you know, these things are difficult. You know, that, that's the answer, you know, that will really come back, right? Is oh, it's difficult to change things, but we sympathize with you, you know? Um, but I, I hope I hope that some of those responses, not only were they genuine, but I hope that they're met with authentic action behind them. Yeah, I mean, I, I know like, for instance, with the, um, with the group that invited me to be part of their panel mm-hmm. on, um, at Sharks International, it was it was a workshop actually. Uh, it was specific for um, diversifying um, media practices. Um, to, you know, so um, there was a lot of representation there from um, different groups, even dis- um, people with disabilities and 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 um, LGBTQA. Um, so, and then there were like, of course, uh, people of color. So it was a whole workshop. Um, and to come up with like plans for how to improve media practices. Mm -hmm. So that I really appreciated that because it wasn't just like, oh, come speak on a panel and share your stories. And then afterwards, you don't really know, you know, there's, there's no way to measure whether or not you had an impact when you, when you, um, went up on that panel and, and gave a talk, right? So I really appreciated that, and I know that they're um, they're moving forward with um, like actually implementing some of the things that were suggested in the workshop. So um, that's something that that's there to look forward to. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, there's it's also just really weird when people reached out to um, you know ask how can I help you, um, you know like. It's yeah. really resonated with me. Like I, I get it. It's genuine, and and they really mean well. But I don't think they realize how, like, how tiring it is for us to mm. come up with these, like, solutions. Because if mm. you're self-aware and you come from a place of privilege and you're self-aware of these issues, 
the answers should be obvious to you. Like they should come organically from you. Um, I don't think people realize that we have so many other issues or concerns um, in our, you know, that, that we're thinking of, right? Yeah. And there's, there's decolonization. There's no urgency to it um, in, for people like me in the Philippines. There's no urgency to it. It's not like climate change. It's not like having to prepare for a typhoon or having to re-strategize because a typhoon destroyed like um, over 99% of the coral reef that had been protected for 30, 40 years. So there's no sense of urgency to decolonization. And that's why when we actually do see and recognize that that's what's happening to us, um, when colonial or parachute science is happening to us, we often just like get upset about it for maybe a day <laughs> and then shrug it off and move on because there's more pressing concerns that mm -hmm. we need um, to put our, our energy and our time into. Yeah, and that's such an important point because not only is it unfair that you all are in a position of having to deal with the problem, you have to have to spend the energy and it's a lot of emotional energy, I imagine, calling out the problem and you have to risk people's negative reactions. And then this influx of positive reactions, that takes effort to deal with. And then you're also tasked with pointing out a solution. And one thing that I really appreciated Joan saying in her interview was, it's just common sense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. it's common sense. Because even just the positive like reactions, mm -hmm. right? The, the messages of support, it can be really overwhelming to like how do i respond to it yeah because you know i don't want to respond in a way that people will misinterpret as like oh i'm a snob or whatever Ungr right so <laughs> or ungrateful like so these these are so even that even just responding to positive um um Re like responses is mm -hmm. kind of confusing and, and taxing as well that's really interesting that's something that in a different sector my brother has experienced with his online advocacy uh, but i hadn't really thought of it in terms of con conservation but yeah it does it's something worth thinking about right like if we see something like this how can we voice our support in a way that doesn't burden the people who are already dealing with the problem speaking of um of twitter threads i'm going to jump to a more recent one and uh, like i said i'm not very active on twitter because it really makes me anxious but i was really happy and really interested to read your sachet economy twitter thread and to see that it got great response again i'm sure that was maybe overwhelming but i love the ideas that you shared and i'd really love it if you could explain a bit about what sachet economy is Right. So a bit of a disclaimer, I'm not a social scientist or economist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I actually um, I actually had to Google it before mm -hmm. I tweeted about it because sachet economy is I'd, I'd, like I've worked in Philippine conservation for almost 20 years now. And I started in terrestrial conservation. Mm -hmm. And in between that, I've had I've done like the more broad, you know, conservation issues like plastic pollution and, and waste management. So this was a um, terminology that I had heard before a few times and I thought I understood, but I still had to check on Google yeah. you know, just to make sure that I was, I was referring to the correct 
um, um, situation or, or scenario of it. So sachet economy is basically just the popularity of using um, products packed in small um, um, containers or small packages, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's the popularity of, of using sachets um, versus buying in bulk. Um, so I hope I explained it correctly. Yeah. I wrote it down. I know I wrote it down somewhere um, <laughs> in like proper English and all that. <laughs> so it's it's yeah, it's just refers to buying products in small packets um, or sachets. That's that's what it it refers to. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. And that's just because that is in the immediate term, in the near term, the most affordable option. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, again, I think the economists would have a lot more to say on on mm-hmm. on this issue, but um, it's really just because generally people just can't afford to buy in bulk, mm-hmm. um, and so it just makes more sense to repack things in smaller or make them available in smaller um, volume or or smaller quantities. Mm-hmm. Um, because not, um, not everyone can afford to buy in bulk. Like a lot of times, they can just afford to buy what they need for the day, um, or what they need for for that particular moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also like a, I touched I touched on it in my Twitter um, thread that you know there's also the aspect of the living conditions, okay. right? Because there were always people who were gonna say like. Oh, just buy in bulk so that you can reduce your plastic waste. Um, but not everyone will have the space um, to store things in bulk. Not everyone will have the space to or or be in the right living conditions to be able to store things um, for the long term. You know, they might not have a refrigerator. Um, they they might just be uh, renting a bed space, not even a whole room. They they could just be renting a bed space, and so. Um, they're they're not going to be in a position to be able to buy things in bulk um, or things that they they need to store for a longer time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's an important point. And it reminds me a lot of um, you know when there was that really big push to ban plastic straws. Uh, oh, yeah. That was uh, actually really harmful to people in the disability community. A lot of folks who struggle with with mobility and just with muscle coordination, for them, they actually do need straws to be able to to drink things in public. And, um, you know, people will be like, well, you should, you know, you should bring a reusable straw. And it's just basically expecting people who already are facing a lot of challenges in life to plan ahead, to bring reusable straws, and maybe they don't have easy ways to clean those straws, and those straws aren't cheap. And why do they need to go through this extra hoop when it's just, you know, plastic straws in, in the grand scheme of things are, are not what's ki- killing the planet, you know? So um, it's a very similar thing that groups that are already marginalized uh, are somehow vilified for being. Yeah stuck in, in, in needing to have more plastic intensive products. Yeah, exactly. Because, um, you know, especially with social media, like, um, 
and and just the amount of social media Filipinos in general. Um, yeah. Even when you're in, from a marginalized sector, you some people already have access to social media, and it's just out there constantly. You know that plastics are a problem, um, and and it's always going being pointed out that we the consumers are the problem, and therefore we were the ones who need to fix it by adjusting our lifestyles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, by not using single-use plastics and all that, bringing re- reusables. But even myself, who um, you know, I'm glad you pointed out that straws are expensive because reusables are expensive they're they're somewhat of a luxury here um it took me a while to actually even buy reusable um like reusable cups reusable um like forks and spoons and a a reusable bento box you know and and the straw and and in the end you're right about the cleaning like when I travel, it's so hard to clean these things. Um, even when I'm just within the city, if I take my reusable cup with me to a cafe afterwards, like it's kind of hard to clean out, to, yeah. to find the place to clean it out. I mean, yeah, I can rinse it out, but um, I might forget about it in my bag and it's, it hasn't been washed with like soap or anything. Yeah. <laughs> it's just been, like when I check back on it, it's, it's like just gross. <laughs> this is why I, I um I can only use wide mouth travel mugs that I can like really get in with a, a sponge or a brush and clean really thoroughly because I'm so grossed out by how my water bottles end up otherwise. It's yeah, it's disgusting. <laughs> yeah, so um, like these solutions are I mean they're great conceptually and if you can afford to do them and make these afford to make these lifestyle changes, then great. But it shouldn't be um, like the rule or like the standard for everyone else to follow, right? Because not everyone can afford to make those lifestyle changes. Exactly, exactly. And um, I think it also comes down to people having too narrow a focus on, on what needs to happen for the environment to be saved. And I think often those people who are in a position to be very preachy about these things, their lifestyle probably, my assumption, is it probably tends to have more environmental impacts overall than someone who is more marginalized and, and living with a smaller carbon footprint because they can't afford to have a more uh, extravagant lifestyle, if that makes sense. So, you know, I think it's common for like environmental activists from somewhere in in the U.S. wanting everyone to have a sustainable lifestyle. And in the meantime, I believe this is still the case. We are the higher per capita emitters of greenhouse gases, you know. So, yeah, (laughs) yeah, let's focus on the straws, uh, but really not question how we're contributing to climate change too much. Yeah, like I get it because I think one of the reasons why my thread on sachet economy really resonated was because um, in 2021 or 2022, um, that report came out that Philippines was the top um, plastic polluter of oceans. Really? Um, yeah. So it, it was, a, I think it was a 2021 journal article okay. that um, studied, you know, how trash from rivers went to the oceans and Philippines stopped that list. And then in 2022, someone like made 
a very compelling visual graphic of of um like the world's top plastic polluters um, of the ocean and the Philippines stopped that, right? So it just resonated with a lot of people because again, we're being told that we're the problem as consumers and therefore the solution is as simple as us to cut back on our plastic use. Um, you know, and, and the interesting thing about that thread was, um, now I, I try not to follow um, for for my mental well-being. But when I do post about issues like that, I, I can't help but like check how people are interacting with it because I am interested in how people are discussing the issue. Yeah. Right. And so one of the things um, that people were like a subtopic of the sachet economy was that, you know, some Filipinos buy in, in smaller packets because there was this belief that if if they buy in bulk, um, it's not fresh anymore after some time. Okay. Um, it goes bad. And I guess this makes sense if like you're buying, um, you know, like cooking ingredients like like oil or, or um, toyo, um, soy sauce. Um, but even for shampoo, I guess there was some, this, someone also put this out there that, you know, like there were some people even for shampoo mm. thought that if it goes bad after some time, and I, and I guess in terms of like um, talking about the impact that you have on the environment, I think if, if you're just buying in small items, like really because you can only, have, whether it's, it's because of your financial limitations that you're, you're only able to afford that for that day. Mm-hmm. But uh, in my observations, like people are only buying what they need, right? right. Versus... If you buy in bulk, you might not actually need it in that moment, or like exactly. you don't really know when it's gonna run out. Like you don't. It's it's just nice to have it there when you do need it. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, in the long term, like your impact might actually be bigger, um, no, negative, good. like negatively, yeah. right? Because um, it's 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 kind of being wasteful. Because sometimes you forget about it, it's just there, you forget about it, and it goes bad. Whereas if people are just buying what they need mm-hmm. for that day, then they're actually um, kind of not waste, wasting anything or wasting resources. Yeah, so that's, that's another- kind of like another aspect to, um, to that issue. Absolutely. Um, and I, I think it's really generally an important thing for people to think about is, you know, realize the actual situation that people are in and trust that in many cases, I mean, I know human beings are not rational, but in many cases, there are reasons for why people do things, right? Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that you posted that and that it got a lot of people thinking and talking. And um, on that note, I think that your posts that I really appreciate the most, the most um, are the ones where you're correcting very, let's say, enthusiastic conservation ideas about um, what people, what fishermen should be harvesting. There's a lot of shaming of, of, of fishers uh, who catch parrotfish or sharks and rays. And 
you know, I can understand, you know, sharks and ray, shark and ray fisheries, you need to be careful, you know, they need to be monitored. But the way that people, I mean, I'm shocked and horrified by how people will comment on those. They'll say, I hope those fishermen die. And, and that's actually kind of a, a gentle version yeah. of, of some of the things that people, and it's just so, it's so um, toxic and so full of misunderstanding. So I love that you will often clarify, like, here's a picture from, you know, the market. And yes, it is a shark or a ray. No, it's not protected. So I'd love to talk, uh, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, you know, why you make sure to post things like this. Yeah, so um, I don't really remember when I started doing it, but I just remember I reached a point in my social media existence where I got tired of seeing those comments, um, you know, because yeah. um, some of them were really just horrible and, and some of them are um, baseless accusations, um, you know, criminalizing people, mm-hmm. criminalizing fisher folk, for instance, um, you know, calling them for, for something that was supposed to be illegal. And it's not just the fisher folk. There's also like negative stereotypes about the community, um, saying, oh, they're uneducated, um, they don't know any better, um, we need to educate them. Um, and then it, it also goes to a governance level, right? Because some people will post things accusing government officials and offices of not doing their jobs. Sometimes they'll blame the wrong government agency. Because, oh. <laughs> you know, like fishery resources in the Philippines is under the jurisdiction of Bureau of Fisheries and Aquatic Resources. But a lot of times you'll see comments go, DNR, DNR is Department yeah. of Environment and Natural Resources, which is um, their jurisdiction is really more for terrestrial. Um, so it's, it's this misconception of uh, a variety or like um, different stages of um, governance and and laws and policies, yeah. so I just got tired of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was unfair to, especially on the part of fishers and and communities. It was just unfair um, for them to receive such harsh judgments, and also um, sometimes for the local officials like the Bantay Dagats. Um, so for those of you who don't know, Bantay Dagat is they're basically like a local um, sea wardens group. They're in charge of like coastal protection. Um, so even Bantay Dagat will, will get, would get criticized in these comments for supposedly not doing their jobs. Um, and a lot of times it's again, criminalizing or accusing people of being lazy and uneducated when in fact, there's nothing to criticize because nothing illegal is being done. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no crime has been committed, basically. And so I just started to, you know, post things for awareness. Like, I'm not going to change people's minds, probably, and I'm not probably going to change people's behaviors about how they um, interact, but I'll post it just so that people can make informed decisions about how they act um, in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And I was just really appreciative of you doing that because I have seen our colleagues in the field not do anything to combat that really outrageous and offensive behavior. And I think if you're posting something that is prompting these kinds of awful reactions, 
it's kind of your responsibility to to counter those, you know, and to clarify, oh, these aren't protected species. These communities actually do know a lot about their environments. These communities aren't doing anything illegal. And I've seen too many people be complacent about that. So yeah. I, I really appreciate anyone who's willing to kind of set the record straight. Yeah, and and another thing that really prompted me about it was this realization that a lot of the people commenting were in positions um, or coming from privilege, right? Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, the educated ones, yeah. um, you know, like um, for parrotfish, for instance, um, a lot of the, the people who post it are coming from the dive tourism industry. Um, and these are people who have a lot of sway in terms of policymaking. Um, okay. And I saw this with sharks, uh, shark conservation as well, like in, in, um, kind of like 2012 2013 before the um before the first shark summit like a lot of the dive uh industry were were really mad at i think someone posted photos of or videos of dead sharks and it just blew up and and suddenly people were calling for like total bans on on shark fishing yeah and it's the same thing with pirate fishes like these people were calling for total bans on pirate fish, but a lot of times people don't realize that total bans don't work because um, a lot of our fishing gears are are meant for multi-species, okay. right? So you can't just ban one, like stop the, the fishing or, or landing of one taxonomic group um, because essentially you would be shutting down entire like um, fisheries. Right. Um, even for other taxonomic groups that you're not targeting in your campaign. Um, so these were things that um, I just realized, you know, these were comments coming and, and um, I mean, as passionate as they are, these were people coming from privilege and with the power to make those um, or influence policies. Um, and it just felt really unfair to the people or communities who would be impacted by those sorts of policies. Yeah. Yeah. And I also feel that people overestimate how effective shame is. You know, it is effective, unfortunately, but it's, it's not the best way to get something changed. And it's really not a good way to establish partnership with people who are going to need to be an active part of the solution, right? Like you can't make communities feel horrible about the things they're doing and then expect them to be the ones upholding sustainable practices after that. Yeah, so yeah, and, and I think this also ties back to um, colonial mentality because mm -hmm. a lot of times, um, a lot of our policies are top down. Um, you know, it. Um, I'll always hear some sort of version of this is how this problem was addressed in first world countries and look how successful they are you know um and then we we take that and then directly apply it here without really understanding or considering the differences in our socioeconomic cultural and and political realities and so essentially it's just setting us up for failure um because we have to acknowledge that we're different and, and things need to be different. We, it's, we can't have policies that are top down 
um, we really need for conservation work to start from the bottom, like involve the communities. Um, because a lot of times they're not really uneducated, like, right? Exactly. Um, yeah. I'm sure you've encountered this. I've encountered this in my interviews with fishers. Um, they have such a wealth of knowledge. It's just not in English or <laughs> it's, it's not technical, but, uh, you know, like some of, some of the things about oceanography I've understood better from fisher folk um, than from a textbook, really. So yeah. they're, they're not uneducated. They do have a wealth of knowledge that, that can be used and, and channeled towards solutions. So I think there needs to be more of an inclusive approach that's not just top-down. Um, it really has to start from communities. Absolutely. I, I agree with that 100%. And yeah, I think there's this harmful idea that, you know, while those of us in relative positions of privilege have spent our lives getting educated and, and building up skills and experiences that people in villages have somehow just like passively and primitively just been hunting for fish. <laughs> it's like, no, <laughs> you know, there are very intelligent people living in these villages they are very practical they are very strong you know they're very resilient and they they learn just as well as anyone else does you know <laughs> um so i'd love to see that recognized a bit more have you what are the reactions you've gotten to your kind of posts correcting these misconceptions has it been kind of mixed or mainly positive um so I don't know because like Filipinos generally are like passive aggressive you know? <laughs> um a response would be like a like or a heart on mm -hmm. on a post <laughs> people won't necessarily comment on on the post um and this is why I prefer Twitter actually because on Twitter the engagement on Twitter is better. Like people will actually reply or or quote tweet something. Um, the reactions on Facebook are a bit more passive, um, okay. so um, that's why. I mean, I try to check on Facebook. There there have been a few posts of mine that will really like get people's attentions and get them commenting. For yeah. the most part, um, it's it's been positive. Like someone will say, you know. I didn't know this. Thank you for sharing your inputs. And then there are some people who are sympathetic to um, communities and fishers who will say something like, thank you for clarifying that this is not illegal, that they're not doing anything wrong. And then there are, of course, like the very passionate people who will stand by their beliefs, you know, and say something like, oh, just because it's, it's not illegal doesn't mean that it should continue happening. You know mm -hmm. that that these should continue to be fished um and i can't like okay yeah that's your opinion yeah um, <laughs> so like i don't really see when when i get those types of responses like i don't think they um like need a response in return because they're, like, yeah. like, they're not in a space of self-reflection <laughs> yeah it's, they're just sharing their opinion as well or reacting to my post and that's something that I really had to learn over time was that not every reaction is going to warrant a response 
um, you know, because some people will just say what whatever they need to get off their chest. And, and that's kind of how I am when I post things sometimes. Okay. <laughs> it's like, uh, it's it's been on my in on my mind for like it's I need to clear up space in my head, basically. Mm-hmm. So I'll just post it. Um, just so that you know it's out of my head and I can move on with my day. Yeah. Um, and I'm not necessarily posting it to get engagement or or discussion. I'm just posting it so that it's just out there right and I feel like the people who comment back or reply to those posts um, are kind of like that as well like they just need to get their thoughts out um, and and feel like they've been heard Um, so I just let them be basically because you know that's their their opinion Um, I'm not going to be able to change everyone but at least there's some people who will go and who might not post about it in the replies but someone might go like oh yeah it's not illegal right right um, so i mean that's the best that i can hope for is that people realize that not everything is um legal um you yeah. know that there are actually policies at work mm-hmm. yeah that's very pragmatic of you gene <laughs> <laughs> that's very wise I feel like many people would benefit from following that mindset on social media <laughs> it's, it's also very um very compassionate of you <laughs> yeah and I've had like a lot of practice because sometimes I would get like I would get so obsessed like following up on like how people are what are people saying so I would get too anxious about it too like oh, oh this might get negative attention or whatever and then i realized like oh no one's commenting on it yeah. um and then I, and and it's not necessarily that they don't care um it could just be that you know with the algorithm they didn't see yeah. my post or it could be that they're busy or, or they're going through something else that that you know they don't have time to react to it or whatever so i yeah i think um in recent years with my social media um, presence, I've kind of had to learn to not take things personally That's really um, when I do those kinds of posts. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that not only is it important that you're trying to set the record, record straight about things that are, are not illegal and things for which fishers should not be sent death wishes. I mean, they should really never be sent death wishes. Yeah. No. But I, I think something that I really feel strongly about is that people need to understand that there is a lot of complexity and nuance to conservation. It's not as easy as like in the kids' cartoons about conservation that you have an evil corporation doing something and the good people on this side and it's just evil versus good, these two forces opposing. It's actually really complex and you can have people who are having harm on an ecosystem and they're not they don't have bad intentions they're not ignorant they're not you know they're not necessarily bad actors it's just a situation that's complicated and so going into this complex interwoven situation with the mindset of there must be a villain somewhere and i want to blame them (laughs) is really such a mismatch with reality yeah i i agree okay um for and, and this ties with like almost every other issue, including decolonization. Um, mm-hmm. You know, our tendency is is to want to blame someone and then, you know, and then want to just hear all the positive things, right? And 
and but that way we're actually excluding potential solutions mm. um, or or sources of of good ideas because we're only going by what we feel agrees with us and when we're failing to see and understand what really um, you know the problems are what they're really rooted in um, why do these problems persist mm-hmm. you know we're we're failing to see those dynamics um, because we refuse to acknowledge that these issues are complex um, there are some um, I know that like especially with an older generation um, you know we, we tend to see um, work as like kind of delineated like science should just be science mm-hmm. shouldn't be shouldn't be political um, you know I'm just doing the research um, doing community work that's where social scientists um, you know like I don't care I just I'm, I just I just care about my data I don't care about right. I'll like I'll submit my data to the LGU to the local government and then it's up to them how they want to translate it and like do whatever they want with it right that's for the social scientists mm-hmm. so it's 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 kind of um like all box stop um yeah. but that shouldn't be the case because we have to acknowledge that these issues are really complex um there are different layers um there's one there's different magnitudes of a sort of problems like for instance for fisheries right yeah. you have fisheries at 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 a small scale level and then you have fisheries at a larger uh, commercial level and then if you're in like first world countries there's fisheries at an industrial mm-hmm. level um, and there are different players at each of these levels and those different players might have different um, dynamics with each other um, and different levels of understanding of the issue and of the solutions as well so it's really complex Right. Yeah. And um, I think we need to start acknowledging that we can't solve things on our own. Like we really need um, to, at the very least to hear each other out. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't expect people to like work with each other immediately, but at the very least, we need to be able to sit down with each other and have these honest conversations um, about these issues. Yeah. Yeah, that would that would make a world of difference for sure. <laughs> well, well, thank you so much, Jean. I, it was so nice to, to see you and I, we interact on social media, but it's really nice to see you and to talk with you and, and to learn from you. Right. Well, thank you for having me. I mean, like this took a while to set up. <laughs> I'm glad that it's, it's finally out there. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and I want to congratulate you on your podcast. Um, oh, I know this was, this was um, a long time coming, I think. Yeah. I just love how it's evolved. And I think it's really important to have voices like yours, um, you know, like conservation realists. We've talked a lot about this in the past um, <laughs> as well. Um, so, yeah, just congratulations. And, and I, I'm looking forward to more of your um, episodes. Thank you so much, Jean. I really appreciate your opinion on that. So thank you. All right. Have a good day. It's daytime over there. Have a good day and we'll be in touch. All right. Okay. You too. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Jala hey. 
โลตาโรอาลอปยอชวนสยาฤปิสวนเนตุปยองเนอาผุเซลโลเลเซยลันเนลาปาจิเยกงโกซองเนตุลาฤนายชินลุเมยาเปยาฤมาตุทะเลก